Well, good morning, and welcome to our Thanksgiving service. This is one of my favorite services of the entire year. I just love the spirit of praise, the giving of thanks, all the fellowship, and not to mention the food, right? I mean, don't you just smell all those delicious smells coming in here? And you know they say that, you know, the the longer the sermon is, the better the food will taste. So, you know, (laughs) now I'm just messing with you. But uh, I love this time of the year, and we've been doing this at least as long as I've been here. And it just occurred to me this week that I was 29 years old when I first started here at Cary Alliance Church. And in two months, I'm going to be 37. Man, where does the time go? And I'm getting to the age where I'm starting to be reminded that I'm not quite as young as I used to be. Whenever I was 29, I used to be able to run outside for miles, but now I've got a bad right knee. And so I can only use the elliptical machine if I want to burn any or Uh, do any cardio work. And I find that I keep getting aches and pains that I didn't get whenever I was 29. That ever happened to any of you? I was working at my office this week, and then in my office chair, I just did this stretch like that. And then all of a a sudden, I had this surge of pain on my right side. I actually had to get down on the floor to put some pressure on it to alleviate the pain. I was like a fish just flopping around on the ground. Again, my body telling me, you're not 29 anymore. You are past your prime. Anyone ever feel past their prime from time to time? Youth group kids and children, your time will come. Don't worry. We see this a lot in celebrity culture, too. Like an actor who was once an A-list actor in Hollywood, but now they're playing roles in low-budget movies. Or like a musician or artist who was once on top selling platinum records on top of the charts, selling out stadiums, but now they've been forgotten and they're playing small clubs. You might look at those kinds of people and call them has-beens. They used to have something, some kind of mojo, but they don't have it anymore. And that's what I think about whenever I look at the group of people to whom Haggai is speaking, a very much has-been type of people. And I've come to love this book the more I've gotten into it. This is going to be a really interesting uh, passage or book for us to get through because this book is the first one in the post-exilic period, and more on that later. But we get a whole lot of detail here. There's actually precise dates that we're given, which we'll use our modern Western calendar just to give you an idea. But they didn't call it like October and September, December stuff back then. But we'll use that just so you can get a good picture of the timeline. And then there's a lot of details that are filled in if you read the book of Ezra alongside of it. So I'm excited to get into this. So let's take a look, if you'll turn with me to the book of Haggai, and we're going to start at verse 2 in chapter 1. And here Haggai is addressing Zerubbabel, who is the, the regional governor of Judah, and he is a descendant of David, that's important to remember, and Joshua the high priest. So this is starting at verse 2. This is what the Lord Almighty says. These people say, the time has not yet come to rebuild the Lord's house. Then the word of the Lord came through the prophet Haggai. Is it a time for you yourselves to be living in your paneled houses while this house remains a ruin? Now this is what the Lord Almighty says. Give careful thought to your ways. You have planted much, but harvested little. You eat, but never have enough. You drink, but never have your fill. You put on clothes, but are not warm. You earn wages only to put them in a purse with holes in it. 
So as you can see, this is definitely a people who have seen better days. And in order to understand who a has-been is, you need to look at who they once were, because they haven't always been like this. So let's go back in time, shall we? So back um, 70 years prior is whenever the Babylonians took over the kingdom of Judah. And this was starting with the capturing of the king Jehoiakim. Everyone say Jehoiakim. Kind of a funny name. But this is important, and we're going to come back to this, so don't forget this. This is the last king of David's line. And so he is actually prophesied against in the book of Jeremiah. Jeremiah writes, As surely as I live, declares the Lord, even if you, Jehoiakim, son of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, were a signet ring on my right hand, I would still pull you off. Now, a signet ring is something that a king or official would wear as a ring or around their neck, and they would use it to seal official documents, kind of like their stamp of approval or their signature. And so this is God's way of saying that he is cutting the line of David off. He is rejecting Jehoiakim and throwing him down. And sure enough, he would end up getting captured by the Babylonians and taken back. And then later, the Babylonians would break through the walls of Jerusalem, they would destroy Solomon's temple, and then they would carry off almost all of the inhabitants back to Babylon, where they would remain for about 70 years. But during that 70 years, Babylonia itself was overtaken by the Persian Empire. And so the book of Ezra tells us that the Lord moved in the heart of the king, the Persian king Cyrus, to issue this decree that would allow the Jews to return to their homeland and rebuild, and he would finance it. And so this is the group of people that we're looking at in the book of Haggai. But it's important to know that not everyone took him up on that offer. Many Jews were content where they were. Many had been born in captivity, and they had good lives that they'd carved out for themselves. And so they're like, no, I don't want to leave this. I got a good thing going here. So they stayed behind. You can read the book of Esther to see what happens with those people. But these people here who take the initiative to return to Jerusalem, they're off to a good start because they're doing what these other people fail to do because they were going to go and go a couple of steps down as far as their standard of living was concerned to what was essentially a startup project. And so it's not like Jerusalem was just up the road from where they were. It was a 900-mile journey, and already today, that sounds like a long drive, especially if you have kids. That's like going from here to New Orleans. But just think of how dangerous and how long it would have been back then. And it's not like they could stop at Bucky's on the way. By the way, if any of you are on a road trip and you see a Bucky's, stop there. You're in for an experience. But it was a long, difficult journey. And some of those people on that trip were older people at least in their mid-70s, who had themselves been taken captive and were now returning. So they were going in spite of their more advanced age and possibly their poor health. And so all these things together just show you the fire, the passion, the initiative that they had to fulfill God's mission. They had a mission, they had a vision ahead of them, and they were setting out to do the Lord's work. It was burning in their hearts to see the worship in the temple restored, to see the promised land once again inhabited with God's chosen people. 
And so already, these guys are rock stars. They're on the way. They're off to a rip-roaring start. So they make it to Jerusalem and immediately get to work on rebuilding the temple. And they get as far as the foundation whenever they throw this celebration. But here's when things start to go downhill. And we read about this in Ezra 3. He writes, And all the people gave a great shout of praise to the Lord, because the foundation of the house of the Lord was laid. But many of the older priests and Levites and family heads who had seen the former temple wept aloud when they saw the foundation of this temple being laid, while many others shouted for joy. No one could distinguish the sound of the shouts of joy from the sound of weeping, because the people made so much noise, and the sound was heard from far away. So you see what's going on here. Those older people who remembered the splendor of Solomon's temple, it was this beautiful architectural masterpiece, which you can read more about in 1 Kings and 1 Chronicles. But they were less than impressed when they saw this new temple about to be built, which was reclaimed rubble. It could never equal what the former temple had been. And so they were disillusioned, saddened, disheartened, and gradually the whole morale of the project went down. And to make matters worse, they were facing opposition by their neighbors. You can read about it in the book of Ezra, but one thing led to another. They ended up riding to the next king of Persia after Cyrus, and he ended up issuing a decree that halted the work. And so then they moved on with their lives. They essentially regressed into who they were in exile. They spent all their energies, their investments, building their own houses, making a comfortable life for themselves, all while the temple remained in ruins. And so this is where we find the people in the book of Haggai right here. And it's not like they were opposed to the rebuilding of a temple. Anyone would have agreed, yeah, it'd be great to one day have a temple in Jerusalem again. But no one was willing to take the initiative to step forward and start rebuilding again. And they would make excuses for their lack of activity. You heard what they said. The time to rebuild the house of the Lord has not yet come. That sounds like an awful lot what we tend to do whenever we get comfortable, doesn't it? We tend to get comfortable with how things are, and we kind of lose our way. And we make up excuses to justify our lack of action in God's kingdom. And we'll say very similar things. We'll use time as an example. You know, it's not the right time. I'm not in a good place to be able to serve the Lord right now. I'd love for my neighbors and my co-workers to hear about Jesus, but the time's not right to share it with them. Busyness is another thing that we, that we always use in our culture today. I'm just too busy. I know that you need people to serve and all, but I've got too much going on right now, and I just can't add another commitment. Or maybe it's finances. I'm just not in a place right now where I can be generous with the blessings that God has given me. Maybe it's our own personal weaknesses. You know, I'm, I'm just not cut out for that. I don't have the gift of evangelism, so we, I need to wait for someone who does so that they can do the work. And so we'll make all these excuses while the kingdom work gathers dust. And we do this all in the name of 
Patience. We'll appeal to patience like these people were doing. Oh, we got to wait on the Lord's timing. And it's true, we do need to be patient and wait on the Lord. But there's a difference between patience and procrastination. Whenever we procrastinate, we are essentially, we're putting off what we know to be right, and we are telling God, you be patient with us. I'll get to you as soon as I'm done doing this. I got to achieve this goal first. I got to have this much money. Just come back in a couple of years and maybe I'll be in a good place to serve in your kingdom. And so that's what these people are doing here. And I know that there is many circumstances, unique circumstances that we can be in that make it more difficult to be more active in God's kingdom. And so there's plenty of grace and understanding and love to go around, no judgment or anything. But if that's some of you here, and that's a word that you need to hear, I don't want you to miss out on what God might be trying to tell you. And so Haggai sees all this going on with his people, and he calls them out on it. He tells them, consider your ways or give careful thought to your ways. This is something that occurs all throughout this book. And he points out to them what he sees. You guys are spending all your time and money furthering your own pursuits. You're building these paneled houses, as he calls them, which implies luxurious houses, while the temple lies in ruins. What's wrong with this picture? And so he's getting to it. He goes on to describe how they have been doing all this work, all this toil, but yielding little to no return. They are comfortable, yet dissatisfied. It's like being on a treadmill. When you're on a treadmill, you can burn calories and sweat, and you can even see a representation of the distance traveled, but you never really go anywhere. And that is what Haggai is talking about here. You're putting all this work, but reaping no harvest, because your hearts have turned from me and have turned to other things and have neglected to do that which I called you to do. I'm reminded of Matthew 6.33. We all know this. But seek first His kingdom and His righteousness, and all these things will be given to you as well. And that's not saying, seek me first and I'm going to make you rich. But that's saying, seek me first and I will give you everything that you need to accomplish the mission that I give you to do. So as Haggai says, consider your ways. That's his way of saying do some self-assessment. Look at your heart. Look at where you're at right now. And he's calling them to self-examination, to consider what they're doing. And then he calls them to obey. Consider your ways. Go out into the mountains and gather the wood that is needed. And so this initial of the word is given on August 29th. Now the question is, will these people obey? Will they listen to the word of the Lord? Let's find out, shall we? If you look at verse 12, Then Zerubbabel, son of Shealtiel, Joshua, son of Josadak the high priest, and the whole remnant of the people obeyed the voice of the Lord their God and the message of the prophet Haggai, because the Lord their God had sent him, and the people feared the Lord. Then Haggai, the Lord's messenger, gave this message of the Lord to the people. I am with you, declares the Lord. So the Lord stirred up the spirit of Zerubbabel and the spirit of Joshua, the spirit of the whole remnant of the people, 
And they came and began to work on the house of the Lord Almighty, their God, on the 24th day of the sixth month. So here we can see that, yes, they did respond and they did obey. So they spent about a month gathering materials, I'm sure, gathering up the personnel. And then on September 22nd, they got to work. Now, this is something very unique because this is not a normal response that you see to prophets of the Lord in Scripture. I can just picture Haggai in heaven with the other prophets and them saying, lucky you, my people didn't, didn't listen to me. Yours listened to you right away. My people killed me. What's up with that? But it's just so interesting to see what happens whenever people actually respond the way they should to the word of the Lord. Very encouraging. And God's not just saying, get back to work, but he gives him this promise. I will be with you. And this is echoing the promise that he gave to them back in Deuteronomy. You remember whenever the children of Israel were about to enter the promised land. He says, I will be with you. He says, I will never leave you nor forsake you. That much was true then, and he's telling them that it's still true today. It's like he's saying, yeah, you might not have a wall around you yet, which we'll get to in Nehemiah. You may not have a lot of resources and money, a big army. You may not have the favor of the nations around you, but you have me. And we can say the same thing. We may not have good health on our side. Our money situation might not be the way we want it to be. We may not have the culture on our side. We might have the whole world against us, but God is with us. Because all these other things are fleeting and passing, but our God is steadfast and unchanging. And who better to be with us, to be on our side, than God himself? You remember whenever we were going through the upper room discourse in the book of John? What was it that Jesus said to his disciples? He said, apart from me, you can do nothing. Now let's flip that around and reword it to say, with me, you can do everything. Essentially, if you flip it around, you get Philippians 4.13, where I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. We can do nothing without Jesus, but with him, we can accomplish anything that he calls us to do. Next week, we'll be looking at the book of Zechariah, which is happening at the same time as Haggai. And he gives a word to Zerubbabel, a very famous verse that you might have heard that says, not by might nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord Almighty. And just imagine what things we can do whenever we are filled with and led by the Holy Spirit. And so, these people are off to a great start. They have gotten a lot of great encouragement, and so then they start working. And then we get to October 17th, less, a little less than a month later, and then discouragement starts to set in. The old memories of being disillusioned with a new inferior temple start to resurface. They start to lose heart, and God knows that they need some help. They need to be lifted up. They need to be encouraged yet again. And so God tells them, be strong. In fact, he tells them that three times. He says, Zerubbabel, be strong. 
Joshua, be strong. All you people in the land, be strong. And this is a command that we hear throughout all of Scripture over and over again. Moses said it. David said it. One of my favorite verses is in Joshua whenever he says, Have I not commanded you, be strong and courageous. Do not be terrified. Do not be discouraged. For the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. And this is not like, you know, those sports movies where the underdog team, they're losing, and then they go and have this big locker room speech. And it's all the same. The coach essentially tells them, search inside yourselves and pull out the best that's in you and go back and get on that field or that court or something. That's not what's going on here because we don't have anything in us of our own devices that we can use because left to our own natural state, we are not strong and courageous, but rather we are weak and afraid and we cannot accomplish anything if we are weak and afraid. So whenever God tells us to be strong, you might think of it as him saying, put on my strength. Because it's not something that's just hiding inside yourself. It's something that you need to put on, to put on the strength of the Lord. So that way you can work, you can go out and set to do what God has given you to do. So I tell you, brothers and sisters, be strong, be strong, be strong. Because we need the strength of the Lord. In spite of everything that's going on around, in spite of the obstacles and the discouragement, we must be strong. And as if this was not encouragement enough, God takes it a step further. But He reassures them that their work is not for nothing. He tells them that their work is about to pay off. And Let's hear what he says here. This is starting at uh, chapter 2, verse 6. This is what the Lord Almighty says. In a little while, I will once more shake the heavens and the earth, the sea and the dry land. I will shake all nations, and what is desired by all nations will come. And I will fill this house with glory, says the Lord Almighty. The silver is mine, and the gold is mine, declares the Lord Almighty. The glory of this present house will be greater than the glory of the former house, says the Lord Almighty. And in this place I will grant peace, declares the Lord Almighty. Is the Lord Almighty or what? If that didn't tell you, I don't know what will. But I love that. And so do you see what's going on here? God is telling them that this project that you don't think very much of right now, this is actually going to surpass the former project the former temple of Solomon. Now, it's true that later on, King Herod would renovate the same temple and turn it into something that was truly impressive. But that's not what he's talking about here. But rather, he's saying that this is the very temple where Jesus himself would set foot in. God in the flesh. This is the very temple where Jesus would be dedicated and prophesied over as an infant. The very temple where he would amaze the scribes at the age of 12. The very temple where he would commend the widow for her selfless, generous offering. The same temple where he would drive out the money changers in his righteous anger. And the same temple where the curtain cutting us off to the most holy place would forever be torn and humanity could come 
and approach the throne of God. This is what he's talking about. And in verse 7, this is a really great verse wherever he says, whenever he says, what is desired by all nations will come, and I will fill this house with glory. And so there's a lot of differing interpretations about what that means. A lot of people commonly assume the desire of nations to be talking about Jesus, but that's not what he's talking about here. If you look at the original Hebrew, the word after desired is a plural word, which literally makes it translate to the desired ones or the desired peoples. So it's not talking about Jesus. And then with that in mind, there's still different interpretations around. But this is how I'll share with you how I've come to understand it, is that the desired of all nations is us, the church, the saints of every tribe and tongue and nation. And so what the Lord is saying here is that Jesus is going to bring us who he desires to come unto himself as the ultimate temple, one not made with human hands. He will bring all peoples unto himself, where together we will worship him, and he will give us eternal peace with God, as he is glorified like never before. In a nutshell, you could describe this as Jesus will bring all peoples unto himself to dwell and be glorified as the Prince of Peace, as the King forever and ever. And if only the workers knew the weight of what they were doing, if only they could see what was going to result from their humble tasks that lay before them. And how easy is it for us to get discouraged at where God has placed us? To look at where we are with dissatisfaction and think, what I'm doing right now doesn't matter. We can look at the past and say, oh, we were really doing things back then, but right now, what's the use of doing what I'm doing right now? We can look at someone we know. We can look at the church down the road. They're doing all these things, but we're in this spot. What's the point of continuing on? But I want to encourage you, brothers and sisters, and I want to repeat what Paul tells us in Galatians 6, 9, where he says, let us not become weary in doing good, for at the proper time we will reap a harvest if we do not give up. So don't give up, because you never know what great things that God will do whenever we obey Him in unimpressive ways. And so God has given these people here a big, just monsoon of encouragement. So they're back at it, they've got the fire lit under them again, and they continue to build. And so then we get to December 18th, which is about uh, a couple months later. And here we get another word from the Lord, which kind of seems to come out of left field. If you read it over the week, you might have been puzzled. What's he talking about here? And so let's go ahead and turn there. This is still in chapter 2, starting at verse 12. And here Haggai is addressing the priests. He says, if someone carries consecrated meat in the fold of their garment, and that fold touches some bread or stew, some wine, olive oil, or other food, does it become consecrated? The priests answered, no. Then Haggai said, if a person defiled by contact with a dead body touches one of these things, does it become defiled? Yes, the priests replied, 
it becomes defiled. Then Haggai said, So it is with this people and this nation in my sight, declares the Lord. Whatever they do and whatever they offer there is defiled. And so he is referencing the old laws of, the, of, the Levit- of Leviticus. Sorry, here. He's referencing the ceremonial laws of cleanliness. But you don't need to understand Leviticus to know the basic principle because we see it in everyday life. Sickness is contagious. Health is not. I wish it were, but it's not. Anyone remember COVID? Remember those early days whenever you'd hear about people going to family reunions, one person would have COVID, and then like a week later, everyone would have COVID? Because sickness touches, it contaminates, and it spreads. Health does not. If one of you had COVID, I couldn't just cough my good health on you. I wish I could, and I would, but that's not how it works. I can't hang around a friend of mine who is in the peak of health and then wake up the next morning with symptoms of toned muscles, loss of fat, good blood pressure. I mean, that'd be great, wouldn't that? I'd love symptoms like that. But that's not how it works. If I fell into a mud puddle, my clothes would get muddy. The mud wouldn't get clothy. And so you see what I'm getting at here. What Haggai is saying here is that holiness is not contagious. You can't be around holiness and then become infected with holiness. Going to church does not make you holy. Growing up in a Christian family does not make you holy. Going to Bible study, missions trip, anything like that, it does not make you holy. Sin, on the other hand, does contaminate. And what he's telling his people here is that this is not about a mere building. The problem wasn't so much with the lack of a building as much as it was the lacking in their hearts. And so this is his gentle yet firm warning to them to consider their ways once again, that whenever you work unto the Lord, you need to make sure that you're doing it from a pure heart. Because all these things that you would do in my name if, they, if you're not doing it from a pure heart, I won't be pleased with it. That's what God is telling them. You know, they could have built Solomon's temple 2.0, and it still would have been displeasing to God had their hearts been in the wrong place. But God wants our hearts more than our religious exercises. It's not about the works of our hands. It's not about our abilities to impress, but it's about our obedient hearts that are willing to do what he calls us to do. I love what Tony Merida says whenever he says, God is after more than the building of his temple. He's after the building of his people. And this is what matters. Not our buildings, not our projects, not our programs, but our obedience. This is what he is going to use to further his kingdom. Not anything else. And so we have got to make sure that our eyes are on him. Haggai reminds the people of the sins of their past and how that led them downhill. Again, telling them to consider their ways. But fortunately, these people, they had turned their hearts around and they were dedicated to obeying God. And because of that, he promised to bless them from here on out. And that same promise holds true for us today. Again, 
not in financial or physical blessings, but the eternal blessings of heaven that are unlike anything else, and only those can satisfy. And so, we get one more word of the Lord from the same day, December 18th, and this time it's addressed to Zerubbabel. He starts off this passage um, very similarly to how he did a few words ago whenever he's talking about shaking the earth. Whenever we see that kind of language, God's saying that he's going to turn things upside down, that he's going to do something radical. And then he shares a personal word for Zerubbabel, which is found in verse 23. On that day, declares the Lord Almighty, I will take you, my servant Zerubbabel, son of Shealtiel, declares the Lord, and I will make you like my signet ring, for I have chosen you, declares the Lord Almighty. Wait a minute. Does that sound familiar? Signet ring? Anyone remember that? You remember King Jehoiakim? He was the signet ring that God had cast off. But here we see a beautiful picture of redemption. It's like we're seeing a picture of God bending down to pick up this ring, dust it off, and place it back on his finger. He's telling David, I have, or David's line, I have not given up on you. You have sinned against me. You have displeased me. You have violated me. You have fallen short of my glory. But my grace is sufficient, and I am not giving up on you. And this is also a personal word for Zerubbabel himself. Because like the people, he had also failed as the governor of Judah. He should have been the one keeping their focus on the Lord and keeping them still working on the temple. But he messed up too. He chickened out. And remember, Zerubbabel is a descendant of David. Jehoiakim, that last king, he is his grandfather. But again, by placing, the, by placing him as God's signet ring, he's saying, Zerubbabel, I have not given up on you. I am equipping you. I am empowering you. I am using you as my representative because I have not given up on you and I love you. God has not given up on us and I am so grateful for that. And I love what uh, Eugene Merrill says. He writes, Zerubbabel becomes a code name for the promised Messiah. So if you think about it, this guy Zerubbabel, he is the link between the old failed monarchy and the eternal kingdom of Christ. This is the guy who links it all together. And so God has called Zerubbabel to build this second temple, which would make way for Jesus, the ultimate temple. There are a lot of similarities between Zerubbabel and Christ. Zerubbabel was an unimpressive man, not possessing anything that would make him attractive, much like Jesus would be later on. But there's a key difference here. You see, Zerubbabel was spared something that he deserved. But Jesus came, and he was not spared. Rather, he suffered the way Jehoiakim did, except this time he suffered for a sin that he never committed. And by his death, 
that curtain separating us from the most holy place has been torn. And by His resurrection, He has become our permanent temple, one not made with human hands, but one in which we can abide forever. He has built us upon Him as living stones, Christ the chief cornerstone. And now we are blessed to worship in and as His temple. Praise be to God. So there are three things that I'd like us to take from Haggai. The first is that now is the time to get up from our comfort and get to work on the kingdom task that still lies unfinished. Maybe for some of you that's doing without a certain luxury so that you can afford to be more generous with what God has given you. Maybe it's freeing up some time in your schedule. Maybe it is being strong simply and getting over anything, any insecurities that you have because there's still work, plenty of work that needs to be done. The second thing is that all it takes is a willing and trusting heart and God will do the rest. It doesn't matter if, if you think that you're not good enough for it. There's plenty of people in Scripture that said that they weren't cut out for it, yet God used them anyway. All it takes is for you to be obedient. You know, we might say, if only culture were like this, if only the White House looked like this, if only our church was like this, if only my life looked like this. But no, God is saying, no, if only if your heart looked like this, one that is obedient and one that trusts in me. That is what God is looking for. And then the third thing is that God has not given up on you. Just as He did not give up on the line of David and He remembered His promise that David's throne would last forever, just as He did not give up on Zerubbabel, though He had failed His people, God has not given up on us. And some of you might be here and you, reg you regret time that you have wasted times whenever you have grown discouraged and failed to work in God's kingdom, times where you've gotten distracted and pursued other things. But God has not given up on you. He has placed you right here, right now, for a purpose. And God can do such amazing things through you if you would let Him, if you would be willing to. God has not given up on you. There might be some of you who have never bowed their knee to Jesus Christ. You might have even gone to church, but like I said, you can't catch holiness. You might feel as though you've been rejected, let down by your friends, your family, the promises that have been made to you. You might feel like a has-been. You might feel as though life has given up on you. But let me tell you right now, if you run straight into the arms of Jesus, He will not give up on you whenever everything else has. And He will give you everything that you need to accomplish His mission. What we have here right now, that's all because Jesus did not give up on us. We are so blessed to come together here and celebrate Thanksgiving. And now I want to encourage us all with the joy that we share 
Let us go out and work the kingdom work so that others might also share in this blessing. Wouldn't it be great to see other people here next year who once did not know the Lord, but now they do? How amazing would that be? God has not given up on us, Cary Alliance Church. So may we follow Him and obey. Shall we pray? Lord God, Lord, we praise You for Your grace. We have fallen short of Your glory time and time again. We've grown comfortable. We've grown distracted. Life happens, and then we lose sight of what we were here to do. And I know that's true of all of us here in this room. That's true of every Christian that there is, because we are still, we still have a remnant of that sin in us. And Lord, I pray that you would open our hearts and redirect our hearts to you in every way that we have put you as number two, Lord. Would you forgive us for every way that we have done that? And would you call us back to our first love, which is Jesus Christ? Lord, would you fill us with your spirit that we may trust in you and not fear, that we may trust that you will give us everything that we need to know that you will not set us up to fail as long as we are faithful to you. So Lord, may we stay faithful to you as you are faithful to us, Lord God. There's a world out there that needs Jesus, that needs the gospel. And so I pray that you would build up your people, build up your church, so that more and more might be added daily to the temple of God. Thank you for how you have blessed us. And thank you that we will look forward to a day whenever we, were, we will share in this blessing with all peoples, with every tribe, tongue, and nation in the temple of Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen.